Hello and welcome to Resist with Lloyd Christopher. Um, in today's episode, and this is going to be a multi-part episode, by the way, I want to talk about gentrification, which is the process of um, when old people, not old as in like geriatric, but like people who've lived somewhere a long time, um, uh, get displaced and forced to move out of the city that they were living in because of skyrocketing rent prices. Um, so the place where I live is actually, um, it just got, um, what do they call it? Spec speculated. Um, so it was purchased, um, for the sole reason of selling it and making a profit, the building that I live in and, um, the new owners who bought it, uh, just served us with eviction papers saying they want to move into the unit. Um, which is very convenient, I guess, because it's rent-controlled. And so I had a feeling something like this would happen, but it's a horrible process, especially for all three of my, all three of us living here because we're all on fixed, limited incomes, and there's nothing that we could find that would be affordable. I've been literally looking for nine years um, because this was only supposed to be a temporary situation for me. And I haven't been able to find anything yet that I can afford, so I'm probably going to become homeless um, after this. Um, and so for that reason, it kind of pisses me off, and I, I want to talk about it. Um, so anyways, there's a place called the San Francisco Tenants Union, and they're really good at helping people um, know the law and uh, figure out how best to respond when something like this happens. And they produce a book called Tenants' Rights, and I want to read a little bit of it for you. Uh, now, I know that this book is only available to, um, to members of the Tenants' Union, but it has an IBSN number, so I'm not sure if you might be able to find it on Amazon. The IBSN number is 978-0-991-1001. Dash two dash zero, and IBSN stands for International Standard Book Number. Um, so tenants in San Francisco constantly struggle for decent and affordable housing in one of the most expensive housing markets in the country. This book shows you how to assert your rights to affordable and decent housing. This 17th edition incorporates over 40 years of experience by tenant attorneys and San Francisco Tenants Union volunteers. It not only tells you what the laws are, it also tells you how to make the laws work for you. This book covers eviction defenses, fighting harassment by the landlord, rent increase defenses, rental agreements, repairs and loss of services, replacing and adding roommates, security deposit refunds, and other information is that's included, uh, San Francisco and California laws, court case citations, resources, and some sample letters. Tenants' Rights comes with a one-year membership in the San Francisco Tenants' Union. Your membership includes free visits to our self-help clinic, access to telephone callback service, and it supports the San Francisco Tenant Union's work advocating for affordable and decent housing for all. Approximately two-thirds of, of San Francisco's residents are renters. Tenants in, the San in San Francisco are a self-disempowered majority. Remaining isolated from one another allows abuses of the law to continue. Tenants must support one another and teach each other how to assert your rights. 
We hope uh, becoming a member of the San Francisco Tenants Union is only your first step in that you will become increasingly active in the tenants movement after your own situation has been resolved. Stay committed to the fight and together we will ensure the basic economic right for everyone. All right, so let's get started with chapter one, the story so far. While we know what it's like to struggle with landlords for decent and affordable housing, it's important to put these day-to-day struggles in context and to realize that we can never stop fighting for our collective rights. While we have the recently, uh, the relatively recent right to habitable housing with heat and plumbing, tenants have yet to win the right to affordable housing or housing free from the fear of eviction. And in San Francisco, we at least have modest version of rent control, which only restricts the rent increase but doesn't ensure it's affordable when we move in, and just cause, just cause eviction protections, which prevent only arbitrary evictions. But getting those modest protections took decades of fighting and remains constantly under attack. Before we were even able to win some housing rights, tenants first had to struggle to get basic human rights, such as the right to vote. Even that right has come under attack as Tea Party conservatives have called for limiting voting to property owners only. That's some bullshit. The struggle for our rights in this country dates back to when the first Europeans colonized the quote-unquote New World over 400 years ago. Many of these white settlers who readily fled the entrenched feudal system of their various homelands for the new promised land probably were greatly surprised to find a similar property-based class system already established here in the Americas. The story of early American feudalism is rarely mentioned in American history classes fed to school children. In later years, tenant farmers who had fought in the American Revolution were outraged to find that only white, male property owners were given the right to vote. Shays Rebellion in 1787 was one of the first tenant-organized protests against the emerging government and its property class supporters and financiers, who had passed laws to tax poor tenant farmers. The laws were passed to pay off the wealthy who had quote-unquote loaned the money to finance the war efforts against Britain. Shea and his followers were quickly squelched by a privately funded militia operating with the blessing of the new government. It was years later before tenants eventually won the right to vote alongside the more privileged landlord class. The struggle by tenants for economic and political justice predates the American Revolution, The landlord-tenant relationship is deeply rooted in feudal times in which tenant farmers, serfs, paid their lords and masters to live on and use a plot of land. In the original landlord-tenant relationship, the tenant would pay rent in the form of crops and other services. The rent was both for the use of the land and for the lord's protection, quote-unquote, which often was protection from the landlord's own gang of marauding thieves, murderers, and rapists. In the original feudal arrangement between landlord and tenant, which was unchanged until only about a hundred years ago, the landlord was not legally responsible for the conditions of the tenant's housing and charged tenants the highest amount of rent that one was able to pay. When all available land is owned and controlled by landlords, tenants are forced to pay monopoly rents to to the landlord class. Tenants begin to organize. Only after organizing were landless people given the rights of citizenship and voting. 
After acquiring voting rights, tenants continued organizing to obtain other basic economic and social rights. Over the past 50 years or so, technological changes and, inex- and the inaccessibility of capital forced many farmers from their small homesteads. Large numbers of farmers were forced from their homes and livelihoods and migrated to the cities. Most of these farmers joined the growing tenant class. Here, often allied with labor unions and churches, tenants began pressuring local and state governments to recognize society's legitimate interest in housing its people and in establishing laws to protect tenants or reforming severely outdated housing laws. laws. While the struggle for basic tenant rights continues today, the law now acknowledges that people pay rent for housing services and not just the land upon which the house sits. Until relatively recently, if a house burned down, the tenant was required to continue paying rent since the condition of the housing itself was not considered relevant to the rental agreement. It was not until 1974 that the California courts finally recognized that a tenant had an obligation to pay rent only if the landlord fulfilled his or her obligation to provide housing services, including minimal health and safety requirements. This development in housing law led the government to eventually pass laws requiring that landlords provide certain basic housing standards, such as plumbing, heating, and electricity. As the polarization between rich and poor has intensified over decades, some cities have gone beyond requiring minimal habitability standards and have passed laws regulating how and for what reasons tenants could be evicted. The emergence of the new field of landlord-tenant law also has permitted cities to enact laws regulating how much landlords can charge for rent. The city finally responds to the crisis. In response to the housing crisis conditions that emerged in the 1970s, the Board of Supervisors in 1979 passed the city's rent control law to address rising rents and increasing evictions. In the law's introductions, the supervisors wrote, quote, The Board of Supervisors hereby finds there is a sh- shortage of decent, safe, and sanitary housing in the city and county of San Francisco, resulting in a critically low vacancy factor. Tenants, displaced as a result of their inability to pay increased rents, must relocate, but as a result of such housing shortage, are unable to find decent, safe, and sanitary housing at affordable rent levels. Aware of the difficulties of finding decent housing, some tenants attempt to pay requested rent increases, but as a consequence must expend less on other necessities of life. This situation has had a detrimental effect on substantial numbers of renters in the city, especially creating hardships on senior citizens, persons on fixed incomes, and moderate income households. The problem of rent increases reached crisis levels uh, in the spring of 19... 79. Uh, end quote. So the housing crisis has not improved and has even been followed by worse crises such as the dot-com boom at the turn of the century and the housing bubble during much of the first decade. Since 1979, rent control, when finally enacted, did alleviate some of the pressure by placing a cap on rents for occupied rental units and providing some protection against arbitrary evictions by landlords. However, this law was passed by a landlord-controlled board of supervisors, which realized that voters were about to approve a much stronger rent control law if the board did not act. 
1979, rent control law, however, had one gaping loophole that created a whole new set of problems which led to the ensuing and ongoing housing crises. Vacancy decontrol. The weak rent control laws passed in 1979 regulated rents on occupied apartments but allowed landlords to charge whatever the market rate would bear for vacant apartments. This form of rent control protects tenants in place against rent increases but does little to preserve the overall affordability of the city's housing stock. While rent increases on occupied apartments rise at a rate consistent with inflation, rents on empty units soar when real estate speculation, a severe supply and demand imbalance, and easy credit during good economic times all cause property values to skyrocket. Accordingly, we have a situation where individual tenants may find that their housing remains affordable but rents on vacant units soar through the roof. This creates an economic motivation for landlords to to try to evict long-term tenants. By evicting a tenant who has lived in a rent-controlled apartment for a number of years, the landlord will be able to double or triple the rent. Not surprisingly, as rents in vacant units have risen, so have evictions and harassment of tenants. Condo conversions soared along with rent increases. In addition to the skyrocketing rents in the late 1970s, there was also an epidemic of condominium conversions, which resulted in San Francisco adopting a condominium conversion law, which limited conversions to 200 per year, required tenants to approve the conversion of their building, banned evictions of senior and disabled tenants for condo conversions, and gave tenants the right to purchase their own apartments. This law did not have the loopholes like the rent control law, but landlords soon found a way around it. Tenancies in common, or TICs. These so-called TICs are almost identical to a condominium, but rather than owning the title to the individual unit, the buyers of the units have a percentage ownership in the entire building and a, quote, exclusive right of occupancy to one of the units in the building. TICs were covered by the condo conversion law, but in the 1980s, a California Supreme Court case ruled that condo conversion laws did not cover TICs unless that exclusive right of occupancy was recorded on the deed of the property. Real real estate speculators then recorded on the deed of the property, or real estate speculators then began selling the units without recording that agreement on the deed, and TIC or condo conversions again became epidemic. Today, the number one housing problem in San Francisco is the conversion of rent-controlled apartments into condominium and condominium-like units. Most evictions in San Francisco are for the purpose of condo conversion, and the steadily declining rental housing stock has made it more difficult and more expensive to find an apartment in San Francisco. The high-tech and housing bubbles hit. In the late 1990s, the high-tech economy in Silicon Valley began to boom, which brought thousands of well-paid workers to the Bay Area. At the time, a Silicon Valley industry group reported that 40% of all Silicon Valley workers were living in San Francisco, who were able to buy expensive condominiums or pay top dollar for rents. San Francisco's vacancy rate dropped to less than 1%, and rents on vacant units increased at a rate of over 30% a year. 
The dual loopholes of vacancy, decontrol, and unlimited TIC-type condo conversions caused evictions in the city to soar as landlords sought to either convert to condos or raise rents on vacant units. Between 1997 and 1998, evictions nearly doubled, increasing 86%. The city's housing struggles took on a new face as gentrification drastically changed the city. With two-bedroom condominiums selling for then half a million dollars and and a million dollars these days, the demographics of the city began changing. As middle- and working-class renters were evicted from their apartments, they were replaced with people who were far wealthier. Those evicted certainly could not afford to buy a luxury condominium, and they also found they could not afford the high rents on vacant apartments. A San Francisco Tenants Union study at the time found that 83% of tenants evicted for landlord move-in, then the most common way to evict for condos or to increase rents, moved out of San Francisco. While evictions had and conversions proved to be the most effective means of gentrification since it forces low- and moderate-income people from the city and replaces them directly with wealthier people. Construction of new, expensive condominiums and phony live-work units soared, bringing even more rich people to the city. With all of this, San Francisco began losing some of its flavor and progressiveness, as artists were forced from real live-work units in the south of Market area. They were replaced by people who then began complaining about the nightclubs in the neighborhood, forcing many to close. Neighborhoods which previously voted progressively suddenly started voting conservatively. Politicians got elected who sounded and talked an awful lot like conservative Republicans, though they were too savvy to actually call themselves Republicans. Following a burst of the dot-com bubble in 2002, rent Rents, evictions, and conversions slowed, but soon enough the housing bubble was in full swing and property values began going through the roof. Speculators began buying up properties all over the city, converting them to TICs and condominiums and selling them for huge profits, sometimes in a matter of weeks. By 2004, evictions for conversions soared again to levels even higher than what was experienced in the dot-com bubble. By 2008, the number of evictions and rents on vacant apartments were at levels which few thought would be possible. In 2008, the housing bubble began to burst around the country, but San Francisco remained immune as property values here continued to dramatically increase. Rents up 30% from 2007, um, evictions and conversions continued to increase as well. In addition, since 2007, when the city adopted the law prohibiting the conversion of any building into condominiums if multiple evictions occurred or if any senior or disabled tenant was evicted, most evictions have happened through coerced buyouts. Not until the end of 2008, when the world's banking and financial systems collapsed, did San Francisco begin to show any signs of the bubble bursting. In 2010, San Francisco was one of only four cities in the country which saw property values increase from 2009 and was again the country's second most expensive market. In the first quarter of 2012, San Francisco had a vacancy rate of 3.2%, the lowest in the country, and the largest increase in rent on a yearly basis, 5.9% nationwide, as wealthy young workers for businesses like Twitter and Facebook moved in. 
As the tech boom continues, like uh, the housing crisis is much worse than during the 1990s. Although developers push for more construction, very little of the new housing is affordable. Here are some key numbers. Median rent for a vacant one-bedroom in San Francisco for June of 2015 was $3,500, the highest in the nation. Minimum wage for 2015 in San Francisco is $12.25 an hour, which at full-time employment would pay less than two-thirds of the median rent. That's unacceptable if you ask me. Low-paid workers who need to stay where their employment and support systems are cram together into small apartments. The chief economist for the city and county of San Francisco estimates that 100,000 new rental units to noticeably lower the price of market rate units. Um, To have an idea of how much housing this is, this is the number of housing units that were added to San Francisco between the 1920s and 2014. That's long. It's a long time. Rent-controlled housing does not require new construction and is a fast and cheap way to increase affordable housing. Short-term rentals reduce vacant rental housing stock by as much as 43%. And 7,539 people were counted in San Francisco in 2015 as homeless, including 4,358 not in shelters and 3,181 in emergency shelters, an increase of 2% from 2013. It is estimated that over 20,000 people experience homelessness for a period every year in San Francisco. This is not surprising since very low-income renters typically pay 60% of their income on rent. This is in a city where, despite much wealth, 12% of the population was below the poverty level in the 2010 census. The Great Recession In 2009, the country's financial and banking system caused the Great Recession, the worst economic turmoil since the Great Depression of the 1930s. It was the housing boom and real estate speculation which caused the collapse, and during the housing bubble, tenants paid dearly via evictions and soaring rents. Tenants lost again as the working class lost jobs and had wages cut. The U.S. government bailed out the landlords and banking industry by paying off their paper debts and mortgages that had been used to bid up the price of those assets in the first place. Incredibly, the government called upon both the working class and the tenant class to pay higher taxes, to pay off the debts of the landlords, bank shareholders, and property speculators, even though tenants and the working class were victims or benefited very little from the financial go-go years. Adding insult to to injury, as tenants were being forced from their homes in record numbers during the housing bubble, our state and national governments cared very little. California state legislators, in fact, even rolled back renters' rights considerably since 1995, making it easier to evict tenants or raise our rents. When homeowners faced the loss of their homes, the federal government made saving their homes a number one priority. Of course, the government should try to keep people housed, but it should value saving the homes of renters and and homeowners equally, rather than treating tenants as second-class citizens. 
The legal system treats tenants differently, too, since the laws generally are written and enforced by white male property owners, just as our founders envisioned 230 years ago. While tenant organizing has led to great victories throughout the years, the system is still stacked against us. Landlords have successfully used the courts numerous times to get laws limiting evictions or rents tossed out by landlord-friendly judges. These judges, um, for example, are almost always property owners and many are in fact landlords or real estate investors. Compare, for example, the startlingly different laws involved in evicting a tenant from his home versus evicting a homeowner. A tenant's eviction process is a summary one, which means that the procedure moves fast. If a tenant is one day late with rent, he can be evicted in a few short weeks. On the other hand, failure to make a mortgage payment will lead to warnings and then a series of notices over a period of many months. When the case finally reaches court, the homeowner is entitled to the benefits of the slow, creaky legal process with full due process protections. As much of the system is, um, um, San Francisco renters fight back. As much of the system is stacked against us, and as much as San Francisco has gentrified, tenants would be in a far worse position if we weren't organized in fighting back. Led by the San Francisco Tenants Union, the city has a strong tenants movement, which at tenants uh, at City Hall and at the ballot box has passed many laws helping tenants and defeated others that hurt tenants. Strengthening rent control has been a priority as the cheapest, fastest, environmentally friendly, non-disruptive method to achieve affordable housing. Reduced or restricted rent increases, Prop 8, 1992, Prop 8, H, 2000. Expanded or retained rent control to owner-occupied buildings with two to four units, Prop I, 1994, Prop E, 1998. Improved Housing Code Enforcement, Prop G, 1994. Limited Owner Move-In Evictions to One Per Building, Prop G, 1998. Defeated Attempts to Repeal Rent Control, Prop R, 2002, Prop 98, 2008. Limited Condo Conversions, Prop R, 2002, 2006, 2013. Provided or Increased Relocation Payment to Evicted Tenants, 2005, Prop H, 2006, 2014. Prevented Landlords from Severing Garages and Other Services, 2006. Required Eviction Disclosure, Prop B, 2006. Required Tenant Buyout Agreements, 2014. Ballot measure to prevent extensive removal of affordable homes by short-term rentals such as Airbnb, 2015, Prop F. Through fighting back, tenants have gained substantial rights over the years, but the reality is that changes in the laws have not ended the historical adversity between landlords and tenants. It's important for tenants to understand the reality of the landlord-tenant relationship in history, the political dynamics that shape it, and the potential votes and grassroots power of tenants versus the money and power of the landlord class. The landlord-tenant struggle is more than an issue of good versus evil. It's not a question of whether you have a good landlord or a bad landlord. The struggle is based on two very competing interests that have nothing to do with the personalities of the landlord or the tenant. The landlord is seeking to make a profit from the apartment while the tenant is seeking to make the apartment his or her home. 
A landlord sees the apartment as a commodity. A tenant sees, sees his or her home as part of a community. This commodity versus community conflict is basically at the root of every landlord-tenant dispute. In San Francisco, this conflict is greater than in almost any city in the United States as San Francisco has one of the highest property values in the country, meaning that there's a lot of profit which can be made off the apartments we call our homes. It is clear that San Francisco has some very critical housing problems. Despite how entrenched these problems are, they are not insurmountable or inevitable. The issue that you face today, the issue that likely caused you to join the Tenants' Union, is not an isolated incident in your life or the city. It is the direct result of a housing crisis gone haywire. It is important to remember that we are all in the same boat, something too many of us forget, and that by working together, we will begin to resolve this crisis. Renters do have rights. After all, a home is not just a place to sleep, but it's also a place for living and enjoyment. The right to have shelter and a home is very precious and must be understood and fought for to be preserved. A home and shelter seems as American and uncontroversial as apple pie, but fighting for this right conflicts with landlords' ideas of private property and making a profit. Too often, people are concerned with their rights only when they or someone they know is being personally threatened. It is precisely this attitude which allows abuses to continue. Perhaps the biggest problem with San Francisco tenants is that we do not recognize ourselves as a class and a majority. Tenants in the city sometimes are a self-disempowered majority. By remaining isolated from one another, we make a serious personal and political mistake. Until tenants begin to assert their rights for affordable, safe, and decent housing, abuse will continue. If you have ever found yourself wondering what you can do about your housing situation or about preserving affordable housing, uh, we hope that this book is a starting point. Getting involved with your local tenants' union and staying committed to the fight for basic economic rights for everyone, including tenants, will go a long way to solving this housing crisis. Don't just be a member of the San Francisco Tenants' Union. Become an active member. And together we can keep San Francisco affordable, livable, and diverse. So I don't know about you, but some of the stuff in that chapter surprised the hell out of me. Like how recently we've gained such basic um, rights as just being able to have a, a place to live that um, that had water and, and, and a to toilet. I mean... And the fact that people had to continue paying rent even if their place burned down. I don't know if that came up in this chapter, but it, it will in the next. And yeah, that's crazy. That's crazy. Could you imagine like renting an apartment and uh, the building burning down? Not because of your fault or anything, but just that happening and you losing everything that you own and maybe even some family members and then still being obligated to pay rent on the burnt land even though you can't live there. That shit is crazy, and I'm glad that we no longer have to deal with that. But the relationship between tenant and landlord is still very, very fucked. Fucked. Excuse my language, but that's the only word I can think of to describe it. It's fucked. Um, that commodity versus community uh, uh, confliction right there is, is it's horrible. I mean, but that's capitalism for you. That is capitalism. Um it really is. I mean, it's always about profit before people. And 
I just hope that we're able to like change that. I mean, the world would be such such a better, happier, more comfortable place for everybody if if we lifted each other up instead of trying to cut each other down and see how much we could get out of them. You feel me? It needs to be people before profits. Not the other way around. <laughs>